This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, July 27, 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. The debt ceiling fight is heating up, but virtually every plan on the table increases spending and increases debt by trillions of dollars over the next decade. At Cato University last night, U.S. Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky discussed the debt fight and other policy issues. I think corruption in Washington isn't like the Huey Long days. I don't see people passing around money in bags and that kind of thing. Maybe I'm not looking in the right places. But I think really the, the corruption is, is that people really don't believe in anything. They don't believe really they are always sort of dumbed down to what is possible. So we, some of us say, you know, the whole budget is a disaster up here, and the only way we'd fix it is with a balanced budget amendment. Immediately all the naysayers say, you can never do it. You're never going to get enough votes. The Democrats won't vote for it. And so we fight these battles, sometimes dispirited from the very beginning, or sometimes the leadership in one house will say, well, we have to raise the debt ceiling. Well, when they say that in February, it takes a little bit of the leverage out of the game if they're already saying we're going to eventually vote to raise the debt ceiling. But we've been fighting this back and forth, and the biggest problem with it and the biggest problem with discussions in Washington is they all start from the wrong place. Everybody says... We're going to cut a trillion, or we're going to cut four trillion, or three trillion. And you, you scratch your head and you say, from what? What are they talking about? Are they really going to cut a trillion dollars? That sounds good. Well, why, why would that be bad? Why would the Boehner plan be bad? They're going to cut a trillion dollars. The problem is, is everything around here is from the baseline. Nobody acknowledges the baseline's going up 7%. So the baseline, if we do nothing, what they're all comparing and talking and contrasting is, the baseline will add nine to ten trillion dollars, or actually eight to ten trillion. We can't get it any more precise than that. Eight to ten trillion dollars over ten years is what debt will be added. But if we pass the Boehner plan, we'll cut it by a trillion. Well, what does that mean? We're not cutting anything by a trillion. We're going to add seven trillion to the debt over the next ten years. That's what the plan is. Now, to really put this in contrast, to show you what it would be like if we had real cuts, there is a plan out there called the Penny Plan. Connie Mack has promoted this, and now I've signed on to it in the Senate. And it balances the budget by cutting 1%. 1% a year for six or seven years. And you say, well, how could that be possible? There's no way. 1%. The budget's $3.8 trillion. 1% only $38 billion. It's against the baseline, though. It would be over $300 billion every year. So you're really cutting $1.5, $1.6 trillion over 10 years. If you cut 1%, every year you'd balance the budget. But it has to be cuts against a baseline that looks like this instead of against a baseline that looks like this. The whole problem with the budget battle, and I go over this every night when I'm on media, is trying to explain that there are no cuts in any of the proposals we're getting. They're all cuts against proposed increases. So it's all a matter of perspective and how these things are presented. Now, I went to CPAC earlier this year, and there were thousands of people there. It was kind of exciting. And one young man who had supported me wrote me a letter. And I'd been uh, up here for about a month or so or a couple weeks. And he said, thanks for introducing $500 billion in cuts. Thanks for introducing a five-year balanced budget plan. And, oh, P.S., by the way, can I please opt out of Social Security? And I loved it because it was just sort of matter of the fact. And I was like, well, what young person wouldn't want to opt out of Social Security? Some people have criticized me for trying to fix Social Security because, I mean, you know, where's the libertarian in you? Why don't you privatize Social Security? 
I've become convinced, though, you know, we failed in the argument, the presentation. We never got anywhere, even though we ostensibly had a president that was for privatization. I still am for privatization. But I am convinced that both politically and also just the budgetary uh, numbers of where the debt is, is that we can't even get to the debate over privatization unless we fix Social Security. So I introduced a bill with a couple of other senators that fixes Social Security by letting the age rise to 70 and means testing the benefits. It acknowledges there's not enough money. It acknowledges we're living longer. It acknowledges that once upon a time we had 50 workers for one retiree. Now we've got less than three workers for one retiree. Also just think from a practical point of view, we can't even get to the privatization argument until we fix it. So let's fix it. Let's make it a welfare program. Let's tell people you aren't going to get what you think you were going to get. But if you do it in a means-testing way, you actually can, I think, bring some of the Democrats along, and you probably could pass that. I think you can get to that someday. I think it's the only way you get to the next step. I think if we get to the next step, though, and we want to talk about privatization again, we might as well just use a new word. And I think we call it individual accounts to begin with. And I think if we call it individual accounts and people are used to going online and seeing their 401K or their IRA and seeing where their money is in their accounts, and then we start adding to that and we uh, show out what a bad investment it is and we allow private options off of that, I think we could have a chance. Now, when I think of private options, I think of Dave Goldberg, who's here. He's uh, from Louisville and was my campaign coordinator, Dave and Kay Goldberg. So anyway, uh, he comes with me to this sheet and he likes to crunch numbers and he says, well, I had to pay, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let the cat out of the bag. You actually are on, the, you are of Social Security age now. Can I tell him that? All right. Oh, so anyway. All right. But anyway, he tells me how much he's paying in Social Security taxes and he also is on the, the receiving end of them. And he says, well, it'll take me, what I paid this year in one year in Social Security tax will take me 36 years to get back the principal. And he says, I am an optimist, you know, on the 36 years. But the thing is, is I'm an investor also, and I would only get the principal back in 36 years. To get any interest on it, it might be 50 years on what he paid in one year in Social Security taxes. Not a very good investment. Now, a good contrast with that, a lot of you know this example, but in 1983, the county of Galveston got opted out. You could opt out at one point. And the workers, it's phenomenal to look at what the workers' investments have done over time invested in private options. And, uh, you know, I think if we can put that contrast out there, I think we didn't have the best messenger or the best person to articulate it the last time. So I haven't given up on it, but I think we have to maybe do it in a two-step fashion in order to get there. Now, a lot of people are unhappy uh, with the EPA. They're unhappy in my, my state, business-wise, we mine coal and we can't mine any coal because they won't let us mine coal. The interesting thing about it is, is that it's, it's spreading. It's almost a visceral antipathy for the EPA, not just from people who mine coal. It's from people who want to build on their lot. Mike and Claudia Sackett bought a lot up in Priest Lake. Their lot is in between two other people who have built houses. They have a sewage hookup already on their lot. It was steep, so they put some gravel out there to level it out, and the EPA said, wait, wait a minute, that's a wetlands. And they said, well, there's, there's no creek, there's no pond, there's no standing water, why is it a wetland? They said, well, you find out by going to court, and you have to get a special permit to build on a, ho a house on, uh, it's a special permit, a wetlands permit to build. Well, it turns out that to get that permit, it's going to cost more than the land's worth. I mean, to fight it through court. So they're estimating $200,000 in legal costs. So this is going to go to the Supreme Court. 
And this will be an interesting battle. We'll see if we can have a blow for freedom through the courts. And I think there's a reasonable chance we could. Obamacare has been in the news. That's another thing where I think we have a great chance in the courts and really to set a precedent that's much bigger than Obamacare, much bigger than health care. Henry Hudson's decision on Obamacare in Virginia was a great decision in the sense that it wrote and said that if my inactivity by my not buying insurance, if that's commerce, what aspect of my life will be free from regulation? This is a big issue. I always told people in the campaign, I said, if my shoes were made in Tennessee, they can regulate my walking in Kentucky. That's how loose the definition of the Commerce Clause has become. I think we have a better than 50% chance of reversing Obamacare. I think there's a very good chance that we can defeat it. And in the legislature, we have zero chance. We tried, it passes in the House, fails in the Senate, and even if it passed in the Senate, it will be vetoed. The other thing that's important from a think tank perspective is we get a do-over. We get a do-over. That's what we called it when I was a kid. You get to do over the whole thing here. It's a do-over. That means we get to re-have uh, the debate over health care. I don't think we did a very good job. Maybe it's not just us, but we didn't have people presenting our message. The message needs to be that health care is failing. It's not working. Insurance premiums are going through the roof. It's expensive. People can't buy insurance. All of those things are true. People have trouble with pre-existing conditions getting insurance. All these things are true. But they're not a failure of capitalism. What they are is a lack of capitalism. So we need to figure out how to inject capitalism into healthcare. I always tell people in my practice, there were two things that the price went down every year for 15 years, 17 years I was in practice. LASIK surgery and contact lenses. Why? Because people had to pay cash for them. There were only one group of people in my practice that cared about the price. And consequently, those, that's the only time the physician cares about the price. Counterintuitively, that was the uninsured. The uninsured and those who have a health savings account are the only people who ever ask the price. We have Mennonite families in our uh, community. They call and negotiate the price in advance. They are the only people that care. And so consequently, all the government programs, all the private insurance, if you come into me and you have zero deductible, you don't care about the price, but do you think I do? So there's nobody caring on either side of the equation about the price. That's runaway inflation to prices. Prices will rise because no one cares about keeping them down. There is no price competition. To put this in illustration, I tell people I did cataract surgery. It was the primary surgery I did. Every surgeon in the whole country has the same charge. Now, how is that capitalism? Almost everybody's over 65. Medicare sets the charge. Everybody is the same. There is no price competition. We need to figure out how to get competition into healthcare, and it would work. But we're going to get a do-over, and we're going to need help from the think tanks to be presenting these ideas and be presenting that it's not a failure of capitalism, it's a lack of capitalism. And I think we can get there. I think we are winning the debate. I tell the, uh, the, the kids when I speak, uh, this morning I spoke to some kids from the Constitutional Academy and I spoke to the interns last week, and I usually start out and I tell them there's good news and bad news. And I always ask them, which one do you want to hear? And they almost always want to hear the bad news. So the adults usually too, I'm not sure what it is, but everybody wants to hear the bad news first. And the bad news I tell them is that we're out of money and that your parents and grandparents spent it all and you're going to be paying taxes for the next 40 years to pay for all the stuff, all the bills they ran up. But the good news I try to tell them is that 
we live in the greatest country ever. And, you know, there's all this debate and talk about American exceptionalism. I buy the argument to a certain extent, not that we're inherently exceptional. Nothing about our DNA or color of our skin makes us exceptional. But the ideas of freedom are exceptional ideas. The ideas of capitalism are exceptional ideas. They produce the greatest amount of wealth that man has ever seen. It's the most humanitarian economic system that man has ever seen. And we need to be proud of it. And the good news for young people is that the American dream is real. The American dream and the mobility from one class to the other is real. The bottom 20%, if you were born into a family that was in the bottom 20% of the socioeconomic ladder, you have a 75% chance of moving up one or two rungs. You have a 25% chance of going to the top of the ladder. Anybody in America can make it. Not everyone will. But we need to keep the hope of that American dream, the hope of the mobility, the belief in ourselves that we can succeed if we have that. But what it takes is, you know, we spent a week in the, in the Senate. Harry Reid has a resolution on the floor. And when we forced him to come back and talk about the debt ceiling for a week, this was the resolution. And it sat at the desk that we talked about. Millionaires are not paying their fair share. Millionaires earn 20% of their income and need to pay their fair share. Now, Facts be damned, you know, the, the problem with the logic is, is that millionaires do earn 20% of the income, but they pay 38% of the income tax. So if he wants to be fair about it, we need to lower the taxes on millionaires. The bottom line is we probably aren't going to do that, but the bottom line is we don't need to vilify people for earning a good living. We want to congratulate them for earning a good living. We want to be proud of profit. We want to be proud of capitalism, proud of the American way. And that is the good news about our country, is that we still have that. I hope it will continue. Thank you very much. Rand Paul is the junior U.S. Senator from Kentucky. You can learn more about Cato University at our website, cato.org.